Hello, friends of the darkness. Spring has sprung, birds are singing, and hell is in the air over here at Listen With The Lights Off. The temperature is getting too hot to handle, and so are the crowds, which means one thing for certain. It's time to retreat into the loving arms of haunting stories, brought to you by So Say We All and La Jolla Playhouse. I'm your host, Jennifer D. Corley. Today's first terrifying tale was written by Alyssa N. Vaughn and features the talents of Diane Yvette, Sam DeSalvo, Savannah Padilla, and Victor Morris. It's the story of two sisters bound by more than just blood. Get ready for Tape Recorder. My little sister was always weirdly proud of all the dumb things we did as kids, but I've always hated talking about our childhoods. Before I went to college, it was usually pretty easy to quash our little detours down memory lane, but as soon as I was out of the house and into a dorm, she started spilling her guts to our mother, telling her every stupid thing we tried when she wasn't home and dredging up ancient history at every family dinner. The first weekend I came home from school, she had this VHS tape ready to go as soon as I walked in the door. Footage of the time I decided to stage an impromptu Christmas pageant for the benefit of Dad's new camcorder. I moaned, groaned, and covered my eyes through the whole thing, completely mortified by the pubescent squeaks of my voice as I bossed my sister and brothers around my whispered directions much louder than any of the improvised dialogue. As if that embarrassment wasn't enough, every time I called home, I was in trouble for something I'd done when I was nine or 10 years old, like tricking her into hiding in the closet for an hour because a tornado was coming, or nailing the ends of a bedsheet into my closet walls for a hammock and making her test it out. It got to where every time my sister opened her mouth to say, Hey, do you remember? I automatically flinched, knowing I was either about to be in deep shit or completely humiliated. When I went home for dad's birthday last month, I braced myself for the worst. I guess I looked pretty relieved when I opened the door and found that my sister had been holed up in her room for a week, trying to finish some history paper because one of my brothers burst out laughing and told me not to relax too much since the paper was due the next day. For once, dinner was pleasantly calm. Mom and dad were letting my sister eat in her room so she could focus on getting her work done. She came down to grab her plate and I said, hi, but she barely looked at me. That assignment must be making her really stressed. She looks like she hasn't been sleeping well. Yeah. My mom wouldn't say much more about it. For a woman who had no problem including updates on everything from my siblings' grades to their dating lives to their fights with their friends every time I called to check in, it was oddly restrained behavior not to immediately launch into a detailed description of my sister's every move. 
Has she been working on this project for a long time? Um, yeah, yeah. Dad, who usually has something to interject about kids our age procrastinating and how we don't know how good we have it, merely grunting? My brother's distracted me from the topic with tons of questions about my tryouts for the basketball team, whether I thought I'd make it, and when they could come down and see me play. This, of course, redirected our parents' focus on me, and I spent the better part of the meal outlining my plan for balancing practice with study time. When I went up to my bedroom, I could see that the light still shone under my sister's bedroom door. I knocked, wanting to tell her goodnight, but she didn't answer. I figured she might have fallen asleep or something, but when I walked into my room just across the hall and glanced over my shoulder, I could have sworn I saw the shadows of her feet just on the other side of her closed door. I didn't sleep easily that night. Maybe it was stress, maybe it was just getting used to the noises of the old house again. I tossed and turned and was sure I'd slept lightly. And yet in the morning, there was something on my pillow that hadn't been there the night before. A microcassette recorder with a tape already loaded. It seemed familiar somehow. I brought it with me down to breakfast. My brothers and sister had already headed off to school, but mom and dad were still sitting at the kitchen table, sipping coffee and getting ready to leave for work. Did you guys leave this in my room? They shared a look briefly, just a fraction of a second. I barely had time to register that it had happened, let alone consider what it might mean. I think your sister left it for you. You used to play with it a lot after you saw someone in a movie use one. A psychologist or a detective or something like that. You made up little notes and recorded yourself reading them. Why don't you listen to it? Mom looked at him sharply. It was unmistakable this time. She looked furious and a little scared. She changed the subject quickly to Dad's birthday dinner, which was supposed to be that night. We'd be going to my grandmother's house, where various aunts, uncles, and cousins would all be waiting for us, along with Grandmother. Then they were off, and I was left to my own devices. I tried to study for a while, but I kept thinking about how odd my parents were acting. How my sister, who I usually couldn't shut up, was locking herself away and leaving me weird presents while I slept. I picked up the recorder. The tape was already rewound all the way to the beginning, so I just hit play. Yay! Yay! It was instant mortification. My awful, squeaky voice immediately conjured images of an ill-advised chili bowl haircut and Coke bottle glasses, marching around the house as I dictated into the recorder. I estimated myself to be a bit younger than the infamous Christmas video, and I thank God that I didn't get the camcorder until my hair grew out. 
I listened to myself making notes on a serious crime, Sam Spade style. Singing a truly awful rendition of You're Never Truly Dressed Without a Smile from Annie. And a series of memos to myself that were essentially jumbled business terms I'd heard my parents and their friends use. I've fast-forwarded a lot, to be quite honest. Then I heard another voice on the tape. At first I thought it was grandmother, but she hated any electronic gadget that wasn't a television or telephone and didn't allow them in her house. I was doing my best Donahue impression, and the older woman was answering my inept interview questions with a lot of patience and an apparent good sense of humor. So what does it mean when... <laughs> my dear, you see, things were so much Definitely not grandmother. People weren't I wondered if it was my mother's mother, who had died before my little sister was born, and I had only just started elementary school. Then, as the younger me asked questions, the other voice started to change. It became deeper, more masculine. Oh, did she go away? Are you a new person now? Yes, my name is Carl, and I used to live in this house. With me and my mom and my dad and my brothers and sister? No. Before you were even born. Before your parents were born. I built this house for my wife and children. Why don't you live here now? Something very sad happened to my family. I didn't want to live here anymore. So I sold it and went away. But I left something important in the basement. Under the floorboards. Under the stairs. Will you find it for me? I'm not allowed to go into the basement. Please. The voice became impossibly deep. I had to check to make sure the tape wasn't coming unspun in the recorder. Please find it for me. Please. Please find it for me. The voice repeated itself over it and over and over Please. again, and the younger me Please started to call for, for mom and dad and for my brothers. Please. Mom? Dad! Please. Something's Please wrong find it me. for me. Please find it for me. Please. Please find it for me. I almost dropped the tape recorder. Please. Please find it for me. Please find it for me. Hey. What's going on? Please. What's wrong? Then it went silent. I pressed stop on the tape recorder. I felt sick to my stomach. Was this another prank I had played on my little sister? Something I didn't even remember? I had sounded so frightened on the tape. I scrambled to keep pace with the thoughts racing through my head. Before I had fully processed a single idea, I stood at my sister's door. My hand was on the doorknob when I managed to stall myself. I was furious every time my sister messed with my stuff while I was away. What kind of big sister was I to be barging into her bedroom like this? What was I even looking for? I pushed the door open anyway and knew the answer right away. 
old newspapers, crumbling journals, three or four more composition notebooks lying with notes scrawled across the pages, and a pile of ten more microcassettes were strewn all over the room. I picked my way across the floor, towards her desk, my head constantly swiveling side to side as I tried to comprehend what exactly my sister had gotten into. A newspaper clipping caught my eye. A Dutch immigrant in the late 1920s had lost his whole family in a fire while he was away on business. He had suffered terribly at the hands of a particularly xenophobic detective who insisted the man must have set the fire himself for insurance money, banking life insurance on his wife and children on top of the insurance for the house. He was eventually cleared and rebuilt the whole house, but immediately sold it and was never heard from again. His name was Carl Bayert. Entranced, I began poring over my sister's notes and research materials. She'd handwritten transcripts of nearly every tape, noting in the margins where she could verify dates and names. I slowly realized that the notebooks laid out were already full. If she was still researching, there must be at least one more notebook. And if she was still researching, then which tape was she working on? There were no dates on the microcassettes, but it seemed clear to me that once I had called for my parents on the tape I heard, they must have put a stop to... Well, we clearly thought we'd been playing, or at least I did. They wouldn't have let it continue if they could help it. At best, they would have forbidden us from playing and kept a closer eye on us until the game had been forgotten. At worst, Grandmother was a devout Catholic and had raised Dad the same. What if they'd forced my sister to undergo some terrifying exorcism ritual? I went downstairs and sat on the couch, completely dumbfounded. I couldn't stop staring at the door to the basement. That's where I was when my brothers and sisters came home from school. Staring across the living room at the basement door. I didn't even realize that the tape recorder was still in my hands. My brother said hello and hustled upstairs to get ready for dinner at grandmother's. My sister stopped and stared at the tape recorder. Do you listen to the tape? My throat was suddenly dry and hoarse. Yes. You heard everything? Yeah. I looked away from the door at last, meeting her bloodshot, darkly encircled eyes. Some understanding passed between us. She knew I'd gone looking for answers. I knew that she'd expected me to do so, that she had left her work for me to find. We both knew what question I was going to ask next. 
What was in the basement? Under the stairs? I never looked. Somehow I knew that. I looked away from her. Back to the door. To the dark and dank basement where something waited for us. She came over to me, put her hand on my shoulder. Her whisper was strangled and low. Please find it for me. I haven't heard a guy so desperate to find something since that time I accidentally stooped a Republican. Hope old Carl has better luck. Next up, a dystopian story by Justin Hudnall called The Meek, starring Brian Simpson. And even though the world may feel like it's ending sometimes, worry not, those bombs you'll hear are just part of the story. You all live in the Millennium Towers. You're all neighbors. That's good. It's good to see people sticking together. Sticking together is what gets us through hard times. I learned about that in the Army. Sticking together was all that kept us alive when we'd go out on patrol. All we had was each other. Everybody else could have been trying to kill us. We'd never know. That's when you learn who your people are. I didn't know anybody like them when I came back. Not until I wound up here in the bottoms. You probably didn't even know that's what it was called over here. That's what all the dealers and the cops and social workers called it before we took over. The bottoms. You can't get lower than the bottoms. Every day from anywhere I went, I could watch them working on your building. I remember thinking how it looked like something out of the future. And then here we were, just a couple blocks away, running around looking for food, making shelters out of whatever we found like we were in the Stone Age. This must be embarrassing for you, having to ask us to take you in. That must be very embarrassing. I know all about embarrassing. People thought just because we were out here on the streets that we didn't care about having pride, but we did. Everybody was trying to take it away from us, even people who didn't know that that's what they were doing. These yellow-headed Christian kids would come down here every Friday, all of them dressed in their bright blue sweatshirts with the name of their church on the back. They'd stand in a circle when they got out of their vans and hold hands and pray before they passed out their food and went ministering to us. They stood in the middle of the block and prayed for God to give them the opportunity to save our wretched souls talked about us to God right in front of us where we could hear them and everything like we couldn't do it ourselves. I heard somebody talking with God every night I slept on the street. If a man around here had come by a tent or got himself a new jacket, he might be feeling pretty goddamn good about himself. Something like that 
can go a long way in a person's mind. But then he see those kids coming, talking God to him like he was so far beneath them and he'd know his place hadn't changed. They do all that to us for the price of a sandwich. You'll never find a preacher living on the streets. The people who lost their jobs were the ones who did honest work. When things started falling apart, church people were the first to stop coming around. End times were what they'd been waiting for all along. We were just here to punch their ticket into heaven. We left them some food when we raided their warehouse. We told them which way to go so their women didn't get raped and themselves all hacked to pieces. We turned the other cheek. People trying to take our pride away is the reason we're in charge now. These two suits would come and scream at us in the night. They made a habit of it. They come off the freeway in their white sports car, slow down, stick their heads out the windows, and scream at us in our tents and sleeping bags, and then drive off. Once or twice a week, they do this. Same time every time, around two in the morning after the bars closed. They must have lived somewhere around here. Maybe in the Millennium Towers. Maybe you all knew them. We knew things were falling apart before anybody else did. We'd notice how the police drove by less and less and then not at all. We'd heard the planes passing overhead farther and farther apart. We listened to your world fading away. We knew when the time came to kill them. If they'd been listening, if they'd had common sense instead of just money in a car, they would have known it too. We made a spike strip out of a chain link fence, laid out with some concrete blocks and rebar and change we got from a construction site. I posted scouts to give the signal when they saw the car coming. Those boys were still alive when we dragged them out. One of them even had some juice left in them after we hung them up on the exit sign. A warning. We waited for someone to come down on us, but no one came that night. Then a whole day went by and the guys' bodies were still up there and we knew nobody would ever be coming. Nobody knew the streets like we did, where all the food was, where all the good places to hold up were. Defensible positions, weapon stashes. It was all ours. Finally, I was back in an army. Here we thought we were the most wretched souls alive, but come to find out, we were just being trained to inherit the earth, just like they said. And now you've come down out of these towers to ask us to take pity and give you shelter and food and protection. You are not our people. I will tell you which way to go, but you all waited too long. Things have got so bad now outside of our gates, any which way you walk, you're gonna run into trouble. So I think what you all ought to do is Go back to what you know. It's all just part of the plan. Friends, 
Be sure to always take the advice of the one who holds the weapons. That is all the time we have for today. Don't forget to join us soon for another thrilling, chilling, and fulfilling episode. Listen with the Lights Off is created by So Say We All in partnership with La Jolla Playhouse as part of their Digital Without Walls series. All the stories on this show come from So Say We All Presses, horror anthologies, black candies. Please do buy the books, available through our website, sosayweallonline.com. This episode of Listen with the Lights Off was produced by myself, Jennifer D. Corley. Tape Recorder was edited by myself, and The Meek was edited by Justin Hudnall. At La Jolla Playhouse, Nicole Kitchen is Director of Arts Engagement and In-House Casting. Mary Cook is Communications Director. Amy Ashton is Producing Associate. Becky Beagleson is Director of Public Relations. Mia Fiorella is Director of Sales and Marketing. And Nancy Showers is Senior Multimedia Director. Our intro theme is by Kurt Conan from AMFM Music. Our outro theme is by Daniel Schreier. And the scoring and sound effects you heard during Tape Recorder came from our Foley artist virtuoso, Scott Paulson. If you'd like to learn more about La Jolla Playhouse, visit lajollaplayhouse.org. And to keep in the loop with So Say We All, read more about the artists who made this project possible, and become involved as one of our future storytellers, visit sosayweallonline.com or find us on social media. We're now on Twitch. Until next time, I'm Jennifer D. Corley, and remember, if you find yourself feeling terrified and alone, there's probably good reason. Now, more than ever.